Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I'm sex educator and sexual communication coach, Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey friends, what happens when a mother desperately wants her child to be a normal old heterosexual woman? Mom ends up with, in Stevie's words, a big old lesbian who also happens to be genderqueer. In today's episode, we'll meet Stevie, someone who is in the midst of navigating a new marriage and the maze of gender identity at the same time. Stevie is 37 years old and identifies as non-binary. They prefer the term genderqueer, but don't usually use it with people they don't know because it can be confusing for those who haven't heard it before. Stevie describes themselves as white, gay, monogamous, and married. Stevie grew up in Scotland and describes their body as athletic and pear-shaped. We had a long conversation about gender that I think will be fascinating to people who are curious about that topic, but may not hold as much interest for people who are here primarily for the sex. For that reason, I've pulled that section out and put it at the end of the episode. I'll pop in with a reminder at the end that if you want to listen to that conversation about how they see their own body and internalized transphobia and homophobia, to continue listening. I'm so pleased to introduce Stevie. Stevie, I am so excited to have you on today. We met each other a couple months ago, and I knew as soon as I met you, like literally within about 10 seconds, I knew that I wanted to interview you, but I like (laughs) waited a day before I (laughs) introduced the topic to you so as to not freak you out. (laughs) That is interesting information. I was not aware of that. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So... The first question I ask everyone is, what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Ah. When you say sexual pleasure, what do you mean exactly by that? Do you mean like go as far back as you can remember? Or what do you mean by that question? I love that you ask that. Because I have listened to the podcast and I've heard some people go far back, but I, I guess like I'm always really curious as to the definition of the question before I provide an answer. For me, part of the reason to ask it that way is to allow others to figure out what it means for them. Mm -hmm. Because for some people, 
they had sexual experiences as a child, whether it was masturbation or something that was non-consensual, and they might or might not want to assign the label pleasure to that. Hmm. And so they want to move forward into their teenage or their early 20s. There are other people who can firmly hold on to those early childhood experiences and call them pleasurable. And that I think is really interesting as well. And then there are some people who just literally did not pay attention to their body until they went through puberty. So mm-hmm. I think any of those answers are interesting and completely valid. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked that question because I think there is, there is an experience that I more or less choose to ignore. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I was, I will call it abused at a, I suppose I was about eight years old mm. by a 15, 16 year old boy who was a family friend. And I, and that sort of used to happen consistently. Mm. Um, so, and at the time, you know, I, I enjoyed the experience. Yeah. You know, he was an older boy. It was exciting. Um, but yeah, in hindsight, not, not, not the best, <laughs> not yeah. the best experience, you know, I am, I'm so glad that you asked the question so that you knew where you wanted to approach this from. And I'm also really glad that you just called that out as a thing that was pleasurable in the moment. But now Mm. you look back with a different view because that's so common and it's so confusing Mm -hmm. to, as an adult, be able to look back at that experience and say, that was not okay. That was non-consensual. And at the time, my body responded the way that bodies respond. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I was asking for it or that I was in any way culpable for what happened. Mm-hmm. So I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I ended up telling my dad about it a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And bless him, he, he didn't know how to respond to that. He, knew, he did remember who it was. I think I, you know, had a lot of feelings of guilt about it, Mm. not necessarily from the time, but I think growing up and realizing this was probably the start of something for him Mm. in terms of abusing young girls, Mm -hmm. or it may have escalated. And I think, you know, the guilt that I have is not knowing where he ended up or not being able to alert anyone to it. You know, I feel that, you know, some sort of responsibility that it may have happened to other people, other girls or, you know, people who are now adults. And I was powerless to stop it. And yeah. still to some extent, because I don't, you know, that from nearly 30 years ago, I don't remember very much about him or his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's such a hard question for so many people who have been through some type of abuse and recognize that that person may have gone on to abuse others Mm -hmm. and feel like they have some culpability in anybody who that person abused after them. When in reality, what's going on is your entire nervous system is caught up in this experience and you have to work through that. You Mm -hmm. cannot be responsible to anybody else until you've, handled what's going on inside you. And for some people that might take days, weeks, months, for some people that could take decades. Mm-hmm. And I I find it really troublesome when I hear people make the assertion that, well, if you didn't do XYZ, then you are responsible for anybody who came after you. That is fucking bullshit. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
Do you remember how it stopped? Um, probably just circumstance of, I think it ceased when he went back to school. Mm. I think he, I think he was at boarding school and I think the only times I would see him was during like a hot, a, a school break. Uh-huh. And so I, I think it stopped when he went back there and then I pr- believe we probably left or something. I don't, I don't know why other than it, I just didn't see him again. Yeah. So you said that you had some pleasure. Is that something you're willing to talk about mm-hmm, briefly? Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. How far were things going and what kind of pleasure do you remember having? I think it started as kissing, you know, French kissing. And that was probably the first time I had done that. Mm-hmm. And then it moved on to touching. I recall only that it being over, like over the clothes. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, I was a tomboy. I used to love <laughs> cycling shorts. So, you know, there wasn't much between, between it, but yeah. um, I do remember it being that. And, you know, he, he was, you know, touching my genitals and things like that. So he was touching your genitals through clothing. Yeah. And there was some genital pleasure involved. Yes. Nothing like it didn't result in an orgasm or anything mm-hmm. for me. I, that didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what that was until later. Yeah. So. Yeah. And was there as a child, a sense of like, this feels weird or was it, oh, somebody's paying attention to me or some mixture of both? I think it was someone's paying attention to me. I think I, I love kissing, I, you know, 10, 10 out of 10 recommend to a friend. Um, <laughs> uh, at least that's what I tell my wife. Um, she doesn't find that as funny as I do. Um, and this is, you know, I'll be honest, I, I do use humor a lot uh, to, to deflect. So you may, you may notice this coming up quite a bit for me um, where something is uncomfortable. But I probably, you know, I was an only child in the 90s. And I remember sort of being exposed to probably things that were maybe a little old for me in terms you know, movies and things like that. And, you know, recognizing what pleasure and attention looks like. Mm. And I, I think I sort of longed for the day when I could experience that, mm. you know, and I did have a couple of friends who, this is my mother's fault, uh, who were, she used to call them the devil spawn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they certainly like to explore sexually. And I know them from primary school. And we would, I don't know, and it sounds, I find it's weird that I find this this sort of hard to talk about and hard to explain. And I don't necessarily know whether this is normal. But, you know, we would get naked and we would sort of, you know, like rub on top of each other and things like that. And I was like, and, and, you know, I remember we nearly got caught once and we were in the bathroom or something. And, um, And I remember thinking, I don't think I would have done that without them. Hmm. And, you know, I think they sort of instigated a lot of some of that exploration or or certainly I knew that it was wrong. I think I knew enough to know that I I should feel shame about this and that Mm -hmm. I was too young to experience this. Mm -hmm. Um, But experience it, I did nonetheless. So first of all, is it normal? It is completely 100% normal. Okay. Second of all, I have so many questions. <laughs> um, so you said they, so it sounds like there were multiple people. Two sisters. So they were sisters. That was one of my questions. At the time, I didn't realize, I didn't know much about them and their family. I believe in hindsight that I think their mother was, you know, had an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that impacted their childhood. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't mean to suggest that it did. I just, I'm not sure whether or not they were possibly doing things for attention or not. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously we can't make any judgments or psychoanalyze them without them here. There is a tendon. How do I want to say this? It is not unusual for a child who has been sexually abused in some way to then act out sexual behavior before you might expect it, like at an earlier age than you might expect that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that kind of activity with two sisters who are sort of orchestrating sexual encounters, maybe, or maybe they were just highly sexual kids who found this thing that was fun and pleasurable for them. And you seemed like a really fun person to do it with. How old were you when this play with the other girls was going on? Five. Oh, that's pretty young. Okay. And how old were they? One was five. The other was maybe seven. Yeah. I don't, I don't hold anything against those two girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you understand anything about your gender or their gender? Because you had experiences with both little girls and with a teenage boy. Was there a sense of which was more appealing to you? Um, I knew, I think from a young age that I liked girls. Mm-hmm. I remember my first babysitter and having a giant crush on her. Aww. And then I subsequently had crushes on other, t- typically women in some sort of authority position. Mm-hmm. I, I may have a thing for women in authority, who can say? <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, I, I recognize that I would have crushes on girls and, you know, women I looked up to. And I think I... I didn't know anyone who was gay. I didn't know it was a thing. Mm. Um, I knew that I was supposed to like boys and we mm-hmm. would go, you know, play kiss chase with the boys and things. But, and I had boy, like I had boys who were friends and I, I was a tomboy and I liked to play with the boys because that's what I, you know, I liked the toys that they had. Like, yeah. why can't I have those toys? Yeah. Why couldn't I play soccer? And I was not allowed to play soccer, in fact, um, mm. because it was the boys. Mm-hmm. And I was not allowed to play guitar because it was for boys. Oh, and no. I think. Yeah, I think my mom just didn't want me to grow up into a big lesbian, but uh, surprise. Uh, (laughs) What were you seeing in your childhood home in terms of affection and sexuality, if anything? As in my parents to each other? Well, I don't want to assume that they were still married. Um, They were still married. They they were together until I was 10. Mm -hmm. And then they divorced. They weren't super affectionate with one another. I do remember walking in on my parents having sex once. Mm-hmm. I, at the time, I didn't know what it. What I walked in on, and I just walked yeah. out and went to my ba- went back to my bedroom, and that was it. Um, in hindsight, I know what they were doing, <laughs> but no, they were not affectionate at all. Uh-huh. And in terms of having relationships that you know were a good model, I don't think I had that. Mm-hmm. And then when they divorced, my mom married somebody else. She, well, she had an affair. And I saw it, not sexually, but I think he dropped her off at the house once. And I remember she kissed him when she came into the house and in full Mm. view of me in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. My dad got really angry with that. And he was never, he was not physical at all. He just, they they had a bit of shouting match and whatever. But again, she and he weren't particularly affectionate. Certainly not that I saw. It was sort of a Hello, darling. You know, kiss when you come in, and that's that's more or less it. Yeah. Um, 
I do remember walking in on them once. I was maybe 11 or 12 at that point, and I know exactly what that was. And I was like, ugh, that's mm. gross. I don't want to think about this. <laughs> but I think, you know, from a perspective of their affection to each other, I didn't see a lot in terms of their affection towards me. My dad was, I would say he was more affectionate than my mom, but we also got on a lot better than my mom and I did. Mm. She never, she didn't, you know, like to play with me necessarily in the same way. And I was pretty self-sufficient. I was an only child. She was sort of affectionate, but not in a way that, I, and she's still to some extent affectionate, although I, you know, we've, I've, I've recently had to cut her off, but I would say that she is affectionate in her own way, mm-hmm. but not in a way. And, and I think the way she shows love is, is very different and it never really felt comfortable for me. Yeah. At what point did you discover masturbation, if at all? When someone gave me a, a rabbit, oh. I did not um, masturbate until I was maybe 19. Okay. Um, so were you having sexual interactions with other people before you were with yourself? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about that. What was your first experience with another person? Uh, once you hit your teen years, not those those childhood experiences. As in what I would call sex? Um, well, you may not have gotten directly to sex right away. Were, were there people who you were kissing before you got to sex? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly happened. I think there was more sort of fingering and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Again, with boys, I think the school, I, you know, I, I went to a boarding school. I went to a Christian boarding school. And I remember the discussions around people who were gay and you know, the the discomfort that I think people felt within a dormitory room, you know, an open dorm, you know, if somebody were gay and they were looking at them naked. Mm. So I knew that in that situation, it was like, not okay to be gay. Because mm-hmm. I, I think, I remember somebody said, you know, statistically in this, or one in every five people are gay, so there must be two people who are gay in this room. And I was just mm. like, just to myself, I was like, well, it's me. Hello, <laughs> 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 oh, it's me. Yeah. And knowing I need to keep quiet. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, when there were discussions about girls who had been gay and been caught or whatever, like they were sort of ostracized. They weren't talked about positively. There were rumors about certain people. And it was, I was just like, I, uh, no, mm-hmm. like, got to keep quiet about this. Mm-hmm. So all of those experiences you talked about, kissing, fingering, all of that was happening with boys. Yes. Uh-huh. And was it pleasurable? Yes. And I think, you know, I, I've realized that w- where it was pleasurable for me was validation. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing that I was attractive and that I fit in. Yeah. And as I've gone through my life as a queer person, I have fallen off the wagon once or twice. And when I have and slept with men, it's generally, it has, in fact, sorry, not generally, it has always been at times where I have needed validation. Wow, that's fascinating. And it's so powerful that you recognize that. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are a lot of people who would go through that pattern and judge themselves for why the hell am I doing this thing I don't want? Because there's a real reason behind it. Because there's a need that you're feeling. Yeah, Um, I would mistake sex for intimacy. Sure. I think I, I started becoming sexually active when I was about... I think it was 18. Mm-hmm. I remember being 18 and I lost my virginity at 18. 
and I kind of went on the rampage a little bit. And, you know, I, I felt that I had started a bit later and, and I think I sort of wanted to, again, fit in with my friends and, and, you know, catch up. And I was like, it's got to feel good at some point. Right. You mm. know, and I, you know, and I went to university and I do remember I kissed, I kissed my first girl when I was 19 Uh huh. and I was like, Oh, this is what it should be like Uh this is it and I really struggled with that and I you know subsequently fell in love with her and it was a disaster and nothing really came from it other than she strung me along a little bit but I do remember kind of kissing her and going oh shit like something is like and I kind of pass it off as oh this is just a bit of fun like people Mm -hmm. women kiss women girls kiss girls yeah. And it being a thing for the pleasure of men. Yes. I can't remember how it came up. And I said, I'd never kissed a girl or something. Or they asked if, if I'd ever kissed one. And I said, no, I hadn't. And um, they said, oh, you should, you and, uh, let's call her Eve. Yeah. They said, oh, you and Eve, you and Eve should kiss. And I was like, and I had a bit of a crush on her, to be honest. Yeah. So I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And so we made out and I was like, oh dear, that was, that was mm-hmm. better than I thought it would be. But I struggled with this. And I, I remember, I think that was kind of around the November. And then the following year, I remember I went to summer camp in America. And I was, re- like, I was really struggling with, sort of internally with my own sexuality. And I remember we had a day off and we went to Daytona Beach. And I lost my friends. I think we were on the beach together. They went off for a walk somewhere and I couldn't find them. So I went to look for them and I stumbled across a group of guys who were like throwing around a football and, you know, they missed whatever. And I threw it back. And they're like, oh, you can throw a football. I was mm. like, yeah, dumbass, I can throw a football. Like, <laughs> duh. And they were like, do you want to have a you, like have a beer with us? And I was like, okay, cool, I'll have a beer. I'd never drunk in the sun before. Mm-hmm. I'd never drunk in extreme heat. And I go, I was wasted quickly. I do remember I, I'd start, I was making out with one of these guys. I remember that. But I remember, the next thing I remember was waking up, being violently ill mm. in this hotel room. Not knowing what had had happened, he may have been a gentleman. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I remember waking up and just feeling like shit and having so much shame about it, and recognizing that I had why I had done this, and I, you know, the way I was using sex to feel close to people without having to emotionally be close to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that I mean that was absolutely my low point because that could have gone disastrously wrong, mm-hmm. like. I could have been on cops. Yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, I need to sort out what I'm doing. Like, what is what is this thing that I'm doing and why am I doing it if it's causing me so much pain? Mm. And I didn't have access to therapy at that point. I just decided, no more. I'm not sleeping with anyone else until I figure out what this is. And you're how old at this point? 19, 20? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I so what I did was I sent this girl a letter from summer camp and I expressed my feelings and hilariously <laughs> I sent it to the wrong address <laughs> <laughs> and this lovely lovely man um had accidentally opened it and read it and sent it back to me and sent me a little note and said I'm so sorry um, oh. I, I opened this and I was like oh thank god because I don't know if I actually wanted to read it anyway but I was so embarrassed and I didn't I didn't respond to him but I'm forever grateful <laughs> But just the writing of that and the act of sending it was incredibly brave. I guess. I mean, I I was so alone. I had no one to talk to about this. Mm. You know, I was in a place where everyone was new to me. 
Yeah. And I remember being in, you know, the bunks or whatever and writing this letter when the kids were doing something and it being really cathartic for me and kind of going, oh, okay, right, this is, this is what it is. And I think, you know, giving myself permission to do it. And I think being away from home certainly, you know, allowed me to do that because you're kind of out of familiar spaces and you're, I, I was sort of allowing myself to go, okay, well, what, how, how do I feel if I'm, if I am away from everything? Cause I probably was running away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I realized I couldn't escape what was going on internally. So I wrote that letter and, um, then I came back and I remember I had a conversation with her and it was a conversation I needed to have. And now is this was, the same person who you had kissed at the party? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes, it was Eve, you know, Eve was lovely and she said, oh, you know, I appreciate you telling me and I, I, I don't feel the same way, but, it, but, you know, thank you for telling me. And I, and that was as much as I needed, mm-hmm. you know, and I, at that point kind of went, okay, I think I'm bisexual mm-hmm. and, and people's, you know, sexuality is their own experience. But for me, bisexuality was kind of a, the stopover on the way to gay town. Sure. Um, it, it was sort of a, a way to give myself permission to explore what that meant. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. And together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no-obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching coaching. So at what point did you find somebody to have a consensual gay interaction with? The first time I think I had had a sexual experience with a woman was after work, I think on a night out, I ended up at the gay bar, there was maybe one or two people in the restaurant who were gay. And that for me, this was, you know, my first experience at community. Mm. And it was small. It was just one or one or two people that were gay. And my husband, as I called him, um, we would often go to the gay bar together. 
So this was a um, gay man who you were. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my gay husband. Yes. Um, to clarify. And I remember we had gone to this gay bar and my friends were so cute and they knew that I was identifying as bisexual. And they're like, oh, like, we'll, we'll find you someone. We'll find you someone. <laughs> like my friend, um, uh, Karen, we'll call her Karen, ran over to me and she was like, I found you this really hot girl. Like, <laughs> you really want to, like, you, you were, like, she really wants to meet you. And I was like, oh God. And so, cause at this point, I think I was still nervous about going into gay spaces. And this yeah. was, there were maybe two gay bars and this was sort of the, the older man's gay bar, really. I don't know how she ended up in it. So she came back to my apartment and I remember my roommate's jaws hit the floor. I didn't expect <laughs> them to be up at, you know, one in the morning, but they were up playing video games or something. And it was my roommate and his friend and there, and I was like, okay, good night. And we went up to my room and, and that was my first sexual experience with a woman. Yeah. Uh, so to clarify, there are always people who are confused about what does sex between two people with vaginas when there is no penis in the room, what does sex mean? So can you tell me for you how you define sex? Hmm. That is a good question. And I don't know that I've ever really settled on exactly what that is. Sure. In this instance, we're both naked. We're both touching each other. So yeah, I would say that was sex. Mm -hmm. So there was genital touch? Yes. Were there yes. orgasms? Uh, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think I did. Okay. I think it's super important to clarify that sex does not always end in orgasm. So you can still be having sex, even if you're not having orgasms. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a pleasurable experience for you? I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I do remember, you know, I, like for me, the, 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 what I recognized from that experience was even if it was just sex, the intimacy that I felt with a woman was so different mm. to being with a man. Mm -hmm. Where I, w I would sort of sleep with men and discard them, I didn't quite do the same with women, but I could sleep with women and it not go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I typically did want another date or something, but I was certainly more interested in the intimacy with women than I was mm -hmm. with men. Was there a point at which you found somebody who you had what you would call a relationship with, an ongoing relationship? You know, I, I, it took me a long time to find someone who I wanted to date who wanted to date me. Mm. You know, at that point, I found it very difficult to meet women. I would find them typically online. Like mm -hmm. there was a, um, I don't know if it exists here, but there was a website called gaydargirls.com. Mm -hmm. And because I was absolutely petrified of going into a gay bar, just petrified. And I, if I did, I had to have my crew, I had to have my group of people and everything else. Because it very much felt like you would walk in and then it felt like a meat market. Yeah. So I um, met somebody on this website and we set up a date and I went to her apartment and she was still living with her ex-girlfriend. I don't think her, her girlfriend was staying there. I think they were, they'd sort of split up and were figuring that out. But so she asked if we could go to my place and I said, sure. So we ended up going to my place and we made out and, and had sex there. It was, I wouldn't, it's, it's tough because I wouldn't exactly call it a relationship. I think it was a a bit of a messy situation. Mm -hmm. And I was really into her. 
like really in turn. It was very messy. But I think it was sort of the first ongoing experience I had had. And I can't say that it went on for very long. I'd say maybe just like a month and a bit, Mm -hmm. if that. But, you know, that was sort of my first experience with intimacy and somebody that I really liked. You know, I hadn't had that. I hadn't really dated anyone, you know, and I was 21 at this point, I think. I Maybe I should step back a bit because I did date a boy briefly, I'd say for maybe two months when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I did have an orgasm with him. Mm. And we dated for a little bit and it was long distance. And I think I was realizing at that point, you know, my like my sexuality was certainly towards women. The thing was, it was like he was fun. I enjoyed spending time with him. And I know that, you know, he was working through some some things. So I think I felt close to him for being vulnerable with me about, you know, like an abusive relationship that he had been in. Mm-hmm. But it didn't work out. But, I you know, and, and to, to, the reason I talk about it was because it was pleasurable for me. And mm-hmm. I, I was able to orgasm. And I, he, that was the first orgasm I'd had with another person was with him. And I was really surprised. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. This can happen. Interesting. And it was vaginal. Mm-hmm. Were you having orgasms with your rabbit toy? Yes, I was. Uh, so you had discovered, you had figured out how to do that with your own body, that it was a slower go to figure it out with other people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With women, it was easier. And, mm-hmm. th- you know, women know their own bodies better. And this person I had started dating, let's call her Harriet, you know, she had come out, I think, when she was 15. She'd had a bit of, you know, she'd had a tough experience with it. I think her parents kicked her out and things like that. But, you know, she was very experienced and had several relationships and knew exactly what she was doing Mm. in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And I felt very inexperienced. And I was like, okay. And, you know, the more I had sex with her and and with women, I was like, everyone's different. (laughs) Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. And some things that would work for one person wouldn't work for another. And then you discover something completely new. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) This is your button. I'll push it. Awesome. So you've been through a series of experiences with a variety of different people, different genders. You've had a, you know, couple of months uh, entanglement, messy entanglement with this Mm -hmm. woman. At what point did you have a real serious relationship? I was 26. Mm -hmm. First time I had my heart broken, Mm. really. I think I sort of broke a little bit when I was younger, but not deeply this was a really really deep um, heartbreak for me she was 34 so we were in a relationship for I would say maybe six to eight months something like that and I think really what split us up was her knowledge and that she wanted to have kids Mm. probably around then and the knowledge that I did not certainly at that point I think I had just bought my first apartment Mm-hmm. Um, much much cheaper in the UK I should point out <laughs> uh, um, yeah and I knew that she wanted kids and I think that that conversation came up for us I think her sister was around with us one evening and brought it up and I was like um well no I mean I'm 26 I've more or less just I'm just setting up my life no I don't want to do it and I think she knew that you know she was um, a police officer and knew that if she had the child that she would then have to take a desk job and her job was like vice or whatever it was mm-hmm. you know she had a she had quite a, a difficult job and it was a little bit unsavory at times and you know she knew that they would put her behind a desk if she had a child and she didn't want that so she recognized that oh hang on if i want to have a child and i want to start thinking about it now i need to be with somebody who's prepared to have it and i think i made the comment of 
so, so hang on so you you want a child and she said yes and I said so but you don't want to give up work and she's like no and I said so you, you want to see this child at the weekends and <laughs> so and and you know have someone to take care of it for you and she really didn't like that yeah that I'd sort of because I think it just it was true it hit a nerve for her and and we didn't last much longer after that she subsequently ended up dating somebody who already had a child hmm. and then they split up and now I believe she does have a child we, we aren't friends anymore. But <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> After some Facebook stalking, I discovered <laughs> that she now has a child. Yeah. Uh, and I'm happy for her. You mentioned that your mother didn't want a big old lesbian as a daughter. <laughs> I take it that at some point you probably came out to her. How did that go? Oh, not well. Mm. Uh, I was fully prepared for her to kick me out. Mm. But my friend had just got gotten married to her partner. And I was sad because I couldn't go to the wedding. I told my mom about Sarah's parents aren't going to be at the wedding and I'm very sad for her. And she was like, well, you know, I said, what do you mean? And she was like, well, I don't believe they should be getting married. Mm. And she then said that she, I said, what if they want to have a child? And she said, well, they shouldn't Mm. be allowed to. And I said, but are you saying that it's better for a child to grow up in an abusive alcoholic relationship or family dynamic than it is for them to grow up in a loving same-sex partnership and she said yes because that's normal oh that was how she grew up you know it was it was abusive and that you know her father was an alcoholic she so she was just like yeah that's that's what it is and Mm. i don't accept anything else so i was like cool i'm not telling you i'm gay yeah bye um i told her when i got back and her response was thankfully it was disbelief i mean she's she's a complete narcissist and she's very egocentric and she really thinks that I do everything I do is to piss her off. Mm-hmm. But she did say, is this because you can't get a boyfriend? Mm. So not supportive in any way whatsoever, but it did save me from getting kicked out because I think she just didn't really believe it. Mm-hmm. So no, she was not super accepting. My father was very accepting. He actually told my grandfather first. My dad, I think, was at the end of a bad marriage, his second marriage at that point, And he had gotten really into the church mm. and God and, and stuff. And I didn't think he would be accepting of it. I didn't think that would align with his beliefs. And in fact, when I told him, you know, I was nervous about it, but he, of course he was just like, well, I love you and I, that's fine. Like, you know, so he was wonderful and still is. Like I also came out to him as non-binary and he has been wonderful. I have given him resources, materials, documentaries, podcasts, and he's read, listened to, watched them Aww. all. Um, he's so wonderful. I couldn't be more lucky. That's lovely. To have one parent who's like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you just mentioned coming at us non-binary. So let's move in that direction. At what point did you recognize that female slash woman was maybe not the right denominator for you? So living in New York has been wonderful. Everyone can find their tribe here. Mm. You're exposed to so much here. And I thankfully attended a a number of conferences. One of the joys of working for a corporate firm was that they would send me to a number of things. And it just opened my eyes a little bit of who I could be Mm. and what it would look like if I were more authentic. And I think I was just, I had been suppressing who I was in favor of trying to fit in and trying to be successful. And I cut my hair it sort of gotten gradually shorter and it was sort of at a at a very short bob level. And I just remember, I actually just went into a barber that we, we had downstairs in the office and I was like, cut it off, huh. get rid of it. 
And so I cut it off and then um, I went to my stylist and she was like, let's go really blonde. And I'm, I'm blonde anyway, but she was like, let's go really blonde. <laughs> so we went platinum. Mm-hmm. I sort of, you know, had a Megan Rapinoe. Oh, by the way, I had it first. <laughs> type haircut. And I, you know, during the the soccer, you know, during the soccer in the Olympics, I had so many people say to me, are you that soccer player? And I was like, oh my gosh, oh. that's hilarious. Yeah, it happened a lot. Wow. I actually also get shouted a lot. and like, oh, you look like Ellen. <laughs> you don't look anything like Ellen. <laughs> I don't think I do. But I think it's, it's, it's so interesting that it's like, that's your yeah. one reference. Mm-hmm. That is it. You have just one reference and it's Ellen. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm grateful for what she has done. But like, I'm, I, it's, it's just sort of slightly annoying for me. Um, so I cut my hair and I started to recognize how differently people saw me. Like my dress sense didn't change. I think like I was always relatively sort of androgynous in the way I would dress, but my hair, there is such a feminine attachment to hair and how it's styled and how you are seen. And once I cut it and, you know, and I became very visibly queer and this, like this platinum blonde hair just says, look at me. Mm. I was like, oh, I have, I hadn't realized how much I had been trying not to be seen. Mm. And now I'm being seen and I'm being seen as queer. How does this feel? And how does this, how do I, how do I feel when I'm seen? And it just really started me on a gender journey, I guess, as I call it. And I ended up seeking out therapy. After a couple of things, I ended up having a couple of panic attacks following a sexual assault at work. And I think part of that was because I was like, this guy this you know very senior person at this firm one didn't like i'm op- i'm openly gay and i'm like and he has just you know not seen that and i felt really unseen for not being like for as queer and i'm like and i'm dressed like this i look pretty damn queer what about this i was really angry what about this makes you think that you can do this mm-hmm. why are you attracted to this why do you think i would be attracted to you like there is just there is nothing that says this is for you mm-hmm. Um, and I got really angry about it. And I, I'd had a couple of panic attacks that were sort of not related to that. And that just happened to coincide with, I would need to go to therapy because there's something that's going on here. And when I went to therapy, I picked a trans therapist. Hmm. I wanted to, to speak with someone LGBTQ. And I think like a lot of the things that I really wanted to speak about came down to my queerness and how I was being seen and how I was being perceived and how I was then internalizing that and you know feeling about it and you know I was now considering like how I wanted to change my style and how I was using my style and expression or or how I was using my style to express my gender and I think there was just a whole language of things that I was trying to learn New York is a great place for that but I, I needed somebody to work that through with yeah and so when I, you know, started therapy and with this wonderful therapist, I had never been to therapy. This was my first experience of the whole thing. And it was so wonderfully cathartic and gave me a lot of freedom to, I don't know, just accept who I am mm. um, and my own emotions and the way I had been repressed through, you know, this sort of f- from Christian boarding school to unaccepting mother all of this internalized homophobia that I couldn't be gay and like butch lesbians looked like this and I didn't want to look like that. And all of this stuff that I was internalizing about what I couldn't look like and that that was not attractive to people. And when I started talking about coming out as gender nonconforming or nonbinary or genderqueer, I was petrified 
it sounds so ridiculous now that I've come out, but prior to that, I was petrified that I was not lovable, mm. like that I would not be lovable, mm -hmm. that I would be unattractive. Yeah. There was someone that I, I was in love with and I, like she didn't love me back anyway, but I knew that this would just cement it. Yeah. Like we, we, there was, there was something between us, but I really thought this would somehow close the door. That door was closed before I then came out as non-binary, so it didn't necessarily matter anyway. But it was something that like, I was so petrified about and I did not want to tell her. Mm -hmm. But it took me a long time to see, it, it was such a process in terms of coming out. And I think for me, I, I wanted to start with my name. I wanted to get away from this feminine only name and go with something androgynous. And it was really funny because I did it and I was going on this um, retreat it was a, you know, a sports kind of retreat. My therapist said, why don't you try using this name? Because we were, we were using this name within therapy. And she said, well, why don't you try using this name with other people and see how it, how it fits on you? How does it feel? I said, oh yeah, okay, that's a great idea. I'll never see these people again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm friends with all of them. Yes. <laughs> of course. And all of them bloody lived in New York. And I didn't think about that either. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked them to call me Stevie. And then I realized oh, hang on, they didn't see me necessarily as non-binary. Even though my name was androgynous, they would still talk about us as the girls mm. or whatever. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. That is not my experience. And I, I remember there was one of, one of the girls or two of the girls met a couple of guys there. And I think they would like, I think one night they, they came for drinks, I think on the last night. And it really changed the dynamic. And I was like, this is what I really hate about straight white men and how they just change a dynamic of like when they're not there what can happen and but then when they are there it's about performance for them mm -hmm. and I just really hated that but you know during that that time I recognized that I didn't like being miss or madam or part of like one of the girls or whatever I was like that's not my experience with this and I, I think I realized at that point like I need to go further than just changing my name how long ago was that 2020 so it was beginning of 2020 so this is still in while the experience has been with you for a long time, the naming and claiming of it is still fairly new for you. Yes. The naming officially changed mm -hmm. very recently. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to come out at work as non-binary. And I think I sort of got caught up in the different parts of my life, like work, my family, my social media, the sort of creative things that I do are all under this one name. And how to do it in a way that didn't out me if I didn't want to be outed or was done in, when it was comfortable for me to do. Because I just felt like if I do it, I have to do it everywhere at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I can't do it until my family know. I'm not ready to tell them. So it was difficult to have some people who, who knew me as Stevie and some people who, or most, I'd say 95% of people in my life didn't. Mm. And it changed when I quit my job. Because I actually, I'd, I'd spoken to HR and said, I want to come out as non-binary and I don't feel safe. And that's sparked a whole conversation of trying to find a different role within the firm. Mm. And I subsequently decided to leave. They couldn't find me something. And I was, I'd had a great experience in many respects with that firm. I was able to, you know, I was a really big part of the Pride Network and I was able to lead a group to change the trans healthcare benefits. Mm. So I was really involved in it. You know, it, I really believed in it, but it was a shame because 
all of the work that I was doing to benefit people like me, I was in a position where I was not being seen. I had experienced homophobia, transphobia, whatever at work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, it's time for me to leave. And the day that I left was when I updated it everywhere. Oh, wow. I think maybe a couple of months before I'd done it on Facebook, but I was careful not to have it where I didn't have any work friends from Mm -hmm. there. Then I did it on LinkedIn and then I did it on my socials and I was like, cool, I'm done. Wow. Like, it's done now. Yeah. And I had come out to my family, I think, in May. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Good Girls Talk About Sex. And speaking of Patreon, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Does it feel like you are now where you want to be? Or is there still further that you want to go on this gender journey? There's still ways I want to go. And I think there's still things that I'm working out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to say this is who I am, but it's another thing for people to see it and recognize it and for them to be the mirror that I see myself in, if you like. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, the be all end all, but it's like, you know, I'm consistently misgendered Mm. as she, her or, you know, miss, madam, all of this. And it's frustrating. And I'm still figuring out how to deal with that. There's also, I think, the physical aspect, you know, how do I, is it, is it enough for me? to identify in a certain way. And I have been considering top surgery. Mm. It's funny because I had to spend, for visa reasons, 
delays and whatever, I had to spend a few months outside of the country and I spent it in Mexico. Lovely place. But, you know, I had to, long story, I had to leave very quickly. I had a bikini and it was really interesting. And there's a safety in not having made any changes to my body in terms of going to certain countries. It can be difficult to travel as an LGBTQ person. It can be unsafe. And I was very cognizant. I was traveling there by myself. And I was like, what would this experience be like if I had already had top surgery? Mm. Would I be safe? Mm -hmm. How would I feel? All of that. So I think there was a lot that I was considering because I knew that this, was a, this is a thing that I want to do. Whilst also thinking, I don't owe anyone anything in terms of my body changing or that doesn't make me more non-binary if I change my body. It's just if I feel comfortable mm -hmm. with it. And I, I've come to realize that I, it is something that I want and it's not for anybody else. But I'm recognizing, again, it's, it's like when you come out as queer, it's not just who you love or who you go to bed with. It will impact many parts of your life. Mm -hmm. And making this change, whilst I'm like, yeah, this will be more authentic to me, uh, my wife and I live very close to her parents and obviously they'll need to know about it because I'll you know, need some help at home. And how, how's that going to, you know, like there is all sorts of ways that, you know, people will know about it and I'm sure they'll be very supportive, but it's like, they're still not getting my pronouns right all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and it's what if we are going on holiday or something together and how, how will they react to, you know, my chest at that point? Mm -hmm. So there's things that, you know, I'm, it's not that, they're holding me back or anything. It's just these these things that I'm kind of working through of like, what what might this be like or what might this be like for them? And we I remember we were actually on vacation in the summer and we went kayaking. And the guy handing out the kayaks and everything, he was like, oh, my father-in-law and I were waiting for a kayak. And he was like, oh, ladies first. Hmm. And I just wanted to punch the guy in the face. And I was like, you don't know how I identify. Mm -hmm. and, and it came back to me because I thought if I have top surgery, what would he, he then say to me? Mm-hmm. Or not. Like, I, I don't know. And it's not, it's one of those things. Again, it's like with my name, it's not going to fix everything. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not, and I can expect it to. But that is is definitely something that's kind of the, like the next step. And, you know, in terms of sex, because this is a sex podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, it is. I haven't forgotten. But, you know, in terms of sex, and it's, it's, my wife and I are working out what this means for us in the bedroom. That was my one of my next questions is how does your wife feel about the potential of you having top surgery? Um, she's so supportive mm -hmm. and she loves me so much and just wants me to be happy. She's just the most incredible person I've ever been with. Mm -hmm. um, had the pleasure of knowing and I've never felt this loved or supported before. Mm -hmm. There are more questions about gender, but I also want to make sure that we talk about your relationship. So, Tell me about meeting your wife and how did you know she was the one? <laughs> we met February 26th of this year. <laughs> what? <laughs> did you not know that? I this? did not know that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, okay, we are recording this at the end of November, which means you have known her for eight and a half months. Mm -hmm. Okay. My longest relationship, Leah. Wow. It's funny because we had a terrible f first date. I wouldn't say the first date was terrible. The first half of the first date was terrible. <laughs> and I say it wasn't really terrible, but like she was so nervous. Mm. She had actually only come out herself about three weeks before we met. Whoa. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. And I was <laughs> first date. Wow. <laughs> I know. Hot damn. We, we, you know, consistently say that we're crazy all the time. <laughs> but yeah, we had this, we had a first date and she was so nervous for the first half of it. Mm. And I think she felt like I was just firing questions at her. But I was like, if I don't ask you questions, we've got nothing. Uh -huh. Like, we, we won't have anything to talk about. I finally asked her a question that got her to open up. And it was about um, her work. And she's very passionate about what she does. And she works with children. And she loves talking about that. So she she finally, like, it, it just, her, her mind opened. She stopped being self-conscious. And then we were away. Then we were flying. The question you asked was, how did I know she was the one? For our first date, for some particular reason, I think we were talking about what it might have been like if we were dating in, like, 100 years ago or something like that. And I said, oh, you know, people wrote each other letters. You know, they, they corresponded with one another. And it was you know, very romantic and all this. And I said, wouldn't it be nice if we wrote each other like a, a note or a card Aww. for our first date? And this is how terrible I am and how bloody jaded I am, right? I found, to be fair, I found a, this vintage postcard, a new vintage New York postcard. So I wrote on the back, you know, something not like, I wouldn't say it was stupid or anything, but I was like, you know, in case I forget to tell you later, I had a lovely time or something like that. She made me, made me the most beautiful handmade card Aww. with like a quote on it and this really, really lovely note on it. And I was like, oh, she's a keeper. Oh. And then subsequently for every date, she made me a card. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh. For our second date, it was even cuter. So I had planned this sort of indoor picnic. I think it was, it was cold and, um, I remember I obviously wanted wanted to get some intimate time. Mm -hmm. So I planned this indoor picnic at my apartment. And she came around and she made me a card, obviously. And she'd also made a playlist. Because I think she said, is there anything you want me to do? And I said, oh, you could, you know, what you could, if you've got a playlist or anything, you could, you could bring that. So she made a playlist on Spotify. She made a QR code for it and <laughs> put it on the back of the card. Oh. I know. Super cute. That's the cutest. So she is the cutest. She is absolutely <laughs> the cutest. And then for our third date, she like painted a little watercolor painting of our second date. Oh. So it was like the picnic oh my um, God. blanket. I know. She was so cute. <laughs> How could I not marry this woman? Seriously. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, that's that's I knew pretty early on that she was she was the one. So how long did it take for you to decide to get married? Probably <laughs> I think about April. Wow. Like at the end of April, May. I think we were, and it was sort of you know twofold and it was because there were some visa issues mm -hmm. and part of it was there was a possibility that I would have to go back to the UK for a year mm. and she was like I've been closeted for 32 years oh. I've finally met you I'm not going to lose you yeah and I could come to the UK with you and I was like well if you do that you'll like she'd have to spend a number of months looking for a job she'd have to spend you know time to transfer her licenses over and whatever and then by the time that had all happened i was like it's a waste of time and she's like well if we got married here would it solve the problem and i was like yes it would wow we sped up a lot of conversations yeah um you know children life plans all of that so we we, <laughs> we had some very serious conversations very quickly wow. and you know realized we were on the same page about a lot of things and thought okay let's Let's do this, yeah. I think, was, was the proposal. <laughs> <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit to the intimacy part of your relationship. How has that been? Has it been, was it good from the beginning? Did it take work? Is it good now? Sort of where are you with that? 
the intimacy part we have, I think, I don't mean to speak for my wife. Yeah. Um, you know, for somebody who has been closeted, there would naturally be some differences and changes and things that she's working through. Sure. So I think we've been working through some of that together. And then obviously there's my stuff and I'm like being in, in bed with somebody. I think I was realizing prior to my wife, um, how I don't necessarily want to focus on the feminine parts of my body. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do I experience pleasure as a non-binary person? My identity is non-binary, but my body sort of isn't quite what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. So how do we navigate that? And I think we started to look at a couple of like resources. I think there was one from Autostraddle. It was to help you kind of navigate through this. Like, what do you want mm. certain things to be called? And quite frankly, we had good intentions of doing it and then we didn't do it. And I think part of that, honestly, was probably me just feeling uncomfortable with doing it. We haven't quite worked our way all the way through that. So it's it's ongoing. But I think, you know, that is f- for me to some extent to to say, yes, this feels good. This doesn't feel good. This feels, you know, and I've certainly said, look, you know, my, my breasts don't do it for me. They never actually have. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're not that sensitive. I've always marveled at women you know, that's their button. Yeah. And I'm like, why is it? Because mine don't do a thing. <laughs> and I'm just not attached to them in any way. And I'm like, rather they weren't there. In fact, it's funny, I have a tattoo underneath my right breast, I suppose. And I can't bloody see it. Because hmm. of where it is, I can only see it in a mirror. And I'm like, if this sort of thing weren't there, I could, I could, you know, admire my own tattoo. Yeah. And I can't do that. <laughs> so no, that's something I'm still working out. I think one of the ways that I've maybe avoided it is potentially by being more dominant in bed Mm -hmm. and yeah it's and this is where the conversation gets difficult for me and this Mm -hmm. is the conversation of not unless I don't want to say been dreading but it's this is where it gets difficult because it's not something I'm sure of or familiar with I, I know that I think the in terms of sex you know we have used some toys and I but it but it becomes difficult because you know if I want to use a strap on or a double-ended dildo or something. The double-ended dildo is interesting because that has to penetrate me. Yeah. And I remember I I used to use it and I loved it. And I and I, you know, can orgasm vaginally, so that's great. But I did use it recently and I it felt like I had I was being violated. And mm. I was like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was just a recent thing or if that's part of me now. I don't know. But it didn't feel good. So I was like, okay, don't want to do that. We don't have a strap on. I, again, I don't want to speak for my wife and I don't want to embarrass her in any way, but she goes back and forth, I think, sometimes as to whether she wants to be penetrated or not. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that comes from her experiences prior to coming out. Mm-hmm. So we're still figuring out whether, like, how both of us like to orgasm and how we like to experience the other person. Yeah. How they want to experience sex. Yeah. So there's there's a lot that we're working out, and you know I think on the back of your your comment that we have you know haven't been together long, mm. I think that that's why this is new and evolving. And you are both at a moment of great change within your own lives, and you haven't been together for an extended period of time. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And now it's time for the lowdown. 
the things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. What's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? Uh, my wife doesn't know this. <laughs> so uh, my dining wife, if you are listening, please just mute for about 10 seconds. My approximate number is somewhere between 50 and 80. Okay. What's your favorite sex position? Hmm. I probably enjoy being on top and being dominant. I think I have typically gotten a lot of pleasure out of pleasuring somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that has turned me on to the point where I can bang it off. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer to initiate or for your partner to initiate? I prefer a mix of both. I don't like always to be the person who initiates. Do you enjoy being penetrated at all? Or is that currently something that's not on the table? Sometimes I do. It's a different experience. We do on occasion do it, but I think sometimes my wife isn't sure and doesn't want to kind of upset me if, if you know, I've had a bad experience before when yeah. we've done something with penetration. Sure. Do you prefer the orgasm from masturbating or from sex with another person? From sex with another person. What's your favorite thing to do to your partner during sexual play? I think I love, you know, foreplay with just kissing. I know it sounds silly, but it is such an intimate thing. Um, it's, I'm always amazed at how turned on you can get by small things mm. and it being small before it becoming something bigger. Mm. How do you feel about porn? I don't watch it. I haven't really tried it. I think maybe I did when I was maybe 18 or 19 and I didn't didn't really get it. I think I really enjoyed watching the L word because that was kind of soft porn. Yeah. The story. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. But it, I wouldn't sort of, I would never watch porn to get off. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever had a threesome or more? No. I came close and ran out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy giving oral sex? I do, but. I find I tend to do it more at the start of a relationship mm. than after that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it's a sort of, sometimes it can feel like an effort mm. for me. Quite an interesting question. Do you enjoy receiving oral sex? I never used to. I used to struggle with it because I found it very, you're very distant from somebody. Mm. And I think you have to feel very comfortable with yourself and with another person to have that distance and to completely let go. Mm -hmm. And I find, I used to find that very difficult. Um, I do find it more enjoyable now, but I think again, that for me is something of a, it's a very, that is an act that really defines me and my body. So it's something I'm probably less comfortable with now. Mm -hmm. What is something about your current sex life that isn't quite as satisfying as you'd like it to be? She doesn't initiate. I don't think she feels comfortable initiating. What belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct yourself on now? It has to be with men. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Let go of that one. 
Stevie, thank you for doing this. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Leah, thank you. It's been really helpful. And I knew, I think, coming into this that it would feel very cathartic. You know, I, I appreciate the space mm. that you've created here. And thank you. Thank you. Hey, friends. This is your reminder that if you want to hear the rest of the conversation with Stevie about gender, their body, and internalized transphobia, keep listening. It will begin immediately after the credits. That's it for today. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at Good Girls Talk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. You said that your body isn't what you want it to be yet, which made me wonder, okay, so top surgery takes care of part of that. If you could make your ideal genital situation, what would it be? It's a hard question because there is no in the middle, right. really, you know, that I, <sighs> my hips are very female defining. Mm -hmm. And I remember I got catcalled during winter where literally only my eyes were visible. <laughs> um, and I was, and that made me really angry because I'm like, these hips are so like, and I'm really slim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even, I mean, I have very small breasts anyway, so I could more or less get away with being flat chested as it is, but these hips, I can't do a damn thing about. And so I'm like, I've, al I've always hated them. And I never realized that I hated them because they identified me as female. Mm -hmm. I never realized that. I remember I brought it up once to a close friend and she got really angry with me because she'd had an eating disorder. Mm. And I think it touched a nerve for her because I, I'd said, you know, I was thinking about getting liposuction and sorting out that problem for me. 
But at that point, I wasn't calling it out as a gender issue. I was just saying that I don't like the shape of my body. Mm-hmm. Now I'm calling it out as a gender issue. And now I'm saying it's gender dysphoria. I wasn't then and I didn't, again, have the language to then. And this was only maybe three years ago. Yeah. Now I know that that's what it is. But in terms of your question, what is my ideal body? It's hard. I see a lot of non-binary folk who come out and often some some continue on and they transition. And I have obviously considered, is that part of my journey? Is that something I want to do? And where I'm struggling is, one, I don't like body hair. I just, I just don't like it. I don't want to be hairy. I don't want to grow hair in certain places. Like I just don't. So whilst, you know, testosterone would probably, you know, fill out my shoulders, it probably would have an effect and take away some of that hip, take away some of the issues around my hips. It would probably create other problems for me that I, you know, things about my body that I don't want. Mm -hmm. And also I, I just hate toxic white masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I see so many trans men assume it. Mm. And is that transphobic or is that me just hating straight white masculine people or just toxically masculine? Mm-hmm. Like it can just be toxically masculine. For for many trans men, it seems to be the goal to show their body, to show that they're male. I find to be sort of toxically masculine. Mm. That's my impression of it. So I am repelling against that or I'm repelled by that, whatever this is the correct term. So I'm, you know, whilst I would want to be more androgynous appearing to other people so that I'm misgendered less mm-hmm. and it's less about when I'm, I look like naked, I don't want to get close to that toxic masculinity. <sighs> Having had the experiences that I've had growing up identifying as a woman and a lesbian, those have really informed me and I, don't want to let go of that. Maybe I just don't want to let go of it now, but I certainly don't want to let go of it. And for me, my pronouns of they, them still include that. Mm. So I don't want to kind of move away from the the sort of center of the spectrum towards more masculine. And I think there's, you know, there's real beauty in femininity, if you like, not necessarily like, you know, having long hair or whatever, but just the feminine Mm -hmm. and the masculine. There's beauty in in both. And I think there's, there is a balance. I really believe in the balance. And, you know, I can, I've, I think to some extent I, I can have a very female energy at times or feminine energy, I should say. And at times I can have more of a masculine energy and those things can coexist. It's not one or the other. It's, yeah. you know, it's both and. For sure. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, where I think about my gender and I think about sex and I, it's, it's not just about one thing my ideal body, it's hard because I think that requires a lot more of me getting comfortable with what I currently have. Mm. I certainly don't want to have a penis or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I think annoys me is that, and again, I don't know if this is okay to say, but I I certainly get annoyed by the fact that men can seemingly have it all. Like if, if a trans woman or, you know, prior to transitioning, a trans woman can have a fully female body. She can do all of that. Trans men can't do that. They don't get everything that functions the same way. And I get so annoyed mm-hmm. by, <laughs> by the sort of privilege of that, yeah. you know, and they get to, to experience to some extent all of that privilege prior to transitioning. And then they, they probably, you know, they definitely lose a lot of that. But 
And that's why I don't want to let go of the experiences that I've had because I haven't had those privileges and, I, and it's been really informing for me and I'm much more empathetic to many people because of it. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated question. It's uh, the way that you break it all down is so fascinating. And I'm thinking about some things I haven't thought about before specifically around the toxic masculinity issue, because one of my best friends is a trans man. And I would say that he is the least, like, toxic masculinity is just not a part of his makeup Mm -hmm. at all. But I can also, uh, there are some other trans men I know, who I think probably do fit into that category a little bit. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to language some of this very well. But, you know, what the science is telling us now is that when trans people take the hormones that are consistent with their gender identity, that it actually corrects things in their brains. Like it, their brains conform to the gender that they experience themselves as. And then we, the hormones come in and it's like the whole system begins to write itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we also, and I'm, I'm not so clear on the science around some of this stuff, but it seems that the testosterone hormone does have an effect toward more aggression. Aggression is the wrong word. Um, assertiveness, maybe. Mm. But we don't have a model in our culture for masculinity where assertiveness doesn't turn into aggression. Mm-hmm. And so if trans men take those hormones and they don't have another model, then it kind of makes sense that perhaps some of them would embrace the model of toxic masculinity because what else have they seen? That's true. And I, I guess, you know, growing up in their ideas of what maleness is and certainly on social media. And I think for me, it's w- w- what I see that I don't like is, is you sort of the sort of shirtless selfies mm-hmm. and because men do that and it's always in men's Tinder profiles and things. So that's kind of what it is, but I do understand that it's for a different purpose and it's serving a different thing. And I don't mean to shit on anyone else's experience and, and, you know, for somebody to see themselves in the mirror, because that's really what it is. It's seeing yourself reflected back to you. And if that's how you see yourself and you're, you love the person who is reflecting back at you, that's what matters. I I think where I just struggle with it is the need to show it to other people. Mm. That's, that's the thing that I think I I have difficulty with. Mm -hmm. Um, but I fully support people in, in their, their journeys. Um, it's just such a complicated topic and it is different from every person. Yeah. And I'm considering this from the angle of if it weren't for that, would I do it? Mm. I don't know. And again, you know, I think I've had so much internalized homophobia and transphobia that I'm, that I have worked through then I still think that I have more to work through. I don't know. Like I, I don't know whether my reservations about it are because of my own internalized transphobia and homophobia mm-hmm. Or that's just how I feel. And that's just not who I am. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I, I don't want to definitively say one way or the other. And I, like, I really want, like, this is a community that I'm part of and being non-binary, it's a spectrum that I'm on. And I want 
to support everybody in, in their own experiences. Yeah. And I really appreciate the very conscientious questioning that you are doing. Thank you. Yeah. 